waiting. You ever have to wait for someone? We don't like it, do we? Some of you, this is going to come as a shock. There was a day when you actually had to wait for somebody without the benefit of a smartphone. Right? Like, if you're waiting for somebody at a restaurant, the best you could do is read through the menus 26 times or something like that and just not know where somebody was. By the way, I'm Benger. Sorry to keep you waiting. There are different kind of levels of waiting, right? I mean, none of us really wants to wait for somebody or something, but, but there's different kind of levels of waiting for, for someone. Um, there's, there's kind of the, the annoyance level where, where it's not really a big deal, but you just kind of find yourself getting irritated. You're waiting at a, at a light and it just won't turn or somebody in front of you misses it and then, you know, they, they, they don't go through when they're supposed to and then only two cars go through and you're sitting there and you should have been through. I mean, irritating. Where the food takes a little longer, it's not really a big deal. Grand scheme of things. And then there's a kind of a heavier type of waiting. It doesn't have to be all bad. Um, you finally get up the nerve to, to, to ask him or her out on that date, and, and you set a spot, and you're going to meet at a coffee shop or a restaurant, but you don't want to be late, so you show up early, but you got to wait. And you, and you position yourself uh, so you can see the door, and every time it opens or somebody comes through, no, it's, no. Or you think you got the job. Like the, interview, the interview went great. But you wait for that call. And every time the phone rings, no, no. But sometimes it's tough. You're in the waiting room, and it's not a routine checkup. And you're not sure what it's going to be, and, and you know that the news is on the other side of that door or the other side, and, and you're just waiting for your name to be called to go back there, and then you got to wait for the doctor, and, and you're, just, you're just anxious, and you just want to hear what it is. But I think... The hardest type of waiting, the most agonizingly difficult type of waiting is waiting for God to show up. Now, maybe you, you wouldn't put it that way. Maybe, maybe you didn't grow up in church or, or you went to church when you were a kid and you walked away at some point in time. Uh, and, and maybe you wouldn't use these words, but, but all of us in some way and somehow have waited for God to show up. Even, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if it isn't part of your language, we've all at some time uh, prayed that, that desperate prayer. God, don't you see what's going on? Like, if you're actually real, now would be a great time for you to show yourself. God, don't you see what's going on here? Don't you see this relationship? Don't you see what's going on with my son or daughter? Like, this, just, where are you? And I think on some level, there are many in this room that have felt stood up by God. You expected him in some way. You felt like you did what you were supposed to do. You felt like you read, man, this is going to happen if I do this, then God's going to do this. And it didn't work out the way you wanted it to. You felt stood up by God. Even those who maybe have followed Jesus for, for a long time can probably point to one or two significant instances in their life where, they, where they, they look back and they say, that did not end the way I wanted it to, and I still don't know why it did. But I, 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 I trust him, and, and I understand sometimes these things happen or something happens for a reason, but I just feel like God stood me up. Like I expected God to show up, and he didn't. 
Now, this is the, the tension that, that we're going to be wrestling through this morning. And in case you tune out or, or, or you go to, to, to refill your coffee and you don't come back for whatever reason, um, let me just tell you kind of the end game here. God has not stood you up. Now, I, I understand that might be empty words. If you are in a situation where you maybe you showed up to your day, you're like, God, I'm going to give you one more chance. I want to hear something. I want you to do something. I don't know what to do. I understand those may sound like empty words, that God has not stood you up. And maybe if you and I sat down for coffee or lunch sometime and I heard your story, I'd, I might feel the same way you do. I get it. But where we're going to end up today is, is God has shown over the course of the last few weeks, as we've been preparing through this season of Advent for Christmas, we've been walking through the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Um, the Gospels in the New Testament um, are really just biographies of Jesus uh, that we have there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've been in the first chapter of John. And um, you can turn there right now if you want to. We'll be in chapter 1 starting in verse 14. Um, you can grab your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, you forgot it. Uh, there's one underneath your seat. Uh, it's a blue Bible. You can turn there, page 900. And eighty-one, um, and uh, if you don't have one at home, uh, that's your Bible. We want you to write your name in it. Want those to walk out the door? Please take that. Um, but as as you walk through kind of the biographies of Jesus, um, you realize that each one has a little bit different flavor, has a little bit different purpose of writing. Mark was really interested. He's, he's probably the first one to write just, just a, a couple decades, uh, maybe even uh, as close to 15 years to when Jesus lived and died. Uh, he is all about action. He wants to point us to the cross and what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so it's immediately this happens and, and he doesn't spend a ton of time on what Jesus said, but more on what Jesus did. Matthew was writing to primarily a Jewish audience that had been waiting for the Messiah. So Matthew explains how Jesus is the Messiah. Luke says that he walks through um, the account of Jesus' life and he wants to put it down in an orderly way, kind of like a historian would. John is different. John, rather than focusing on, on the what as much, there's some narrative there, there's some teaching, he, he focuses a lot on the why as well. That's why in the first chapter, when, when he talks about Jesus coming to earth, there's no shepherds. There's, there's no angel uh, appearing. Um, he doesn't why. He's like, man, you know the story. I know you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I know you know these stories. I'm going to tell you why. And he's been walking through what it means that Jesus, who was the eternal word, who was the expression of God, the second person in the Trinity, he was 100% divine. He became 100% human, 100% God, 100% human. He was the true light. And today... John's going to walk us through this tension of what it means that God one day showed up. So if you would, for me, would you stand out of reverence for the word of God, if you are able, we're going to read, uh, I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. Verse 14, and the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the, the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him 
known. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. John, in this short little section here, gives kind of the thesis at the beginning. And the word, he's already spent time setting this up. If you missed the last couple of weeks, the word is Jesus. And the word became flesh. He put on flesh and bones and he dwelt among us. Literally, he pitched a tent. He didn't just show up. He didn't orbit a deal for a weekend here in Bountiful um, and, and just say, man, I'm going to stay for the weekend. He came to dwell. He showed up and he lived here. He put on flesh and bones. This is important to John. He lived here. And then John spends the next few verses kind of unpacking what exactly that means, why this is such a big deal. Because I think, at least when I was growing up, some of you know my story, I didn't go to church um, growing up very much, but we went to Christmas and Easter. But we did have like a baby Jesus type decoration around Christmas. We actually went under our Christmas tree, and it's a, it was a kind of a little figurine of Jesus in hay and in a basket, and I called him Baby Dita, and my mom still makes fun of me for that and the whole thing. Um, but I think sometimes, even though it's important to know that Jesus came as a vulnerable, needy human being who was dependent on others for his very well-being, how, how the divine Son of God, fully God, became fully human. It's important to know that. But I think sometimes we look at that and we say, isn't that cute? Baby Dita, isn't that, isn't that cute? And what John wants to point us to over the next few verses is how incredible this idea is. In fact, through this description, uh, what he wants us to do, and, and those who are listening to this for the first time would likely have made this connection, um, he's going back to the book of Exodus, specifically the time when, when Moses, if you've, if you've ever heard the story of Moses, Moses is the one who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. God chosen to lead them out of Egypt, but, but it seems like it was just a difficult job because God would do something amazing, and then they say, no, God, we don't want that. We want to go back to, it was better for us when we were slaves. And God would save them again, and he would rescue them. And, and they'd say, no, it was better when we were slaves. And Moses just gets exasperated. And one day he says, God, if I could just see you, like if I just know you're there. God says, no, because it would kill you. The completely holy and other God, to see him face to face, because of our brokenness and our sinfulness, it would, would have killed Moses. And so God says, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to cover you up with my hand. I'm going to cover you up, and I'm going to pass by, and you're going to see my glory. And you're just going to see me as I'm walking away, because you can't, you can't behold all of me and live. And John wants us to, to remember that image that, that we, we cannot see God face to face. And then, and that's Exodus 33, and then in Exodus 34... God gives Moses the Ten Commandments again. You remember the first time Charlton Heston went up to the mountain and came down and broke the tablets, right? Right, you remember that? Um, I guess there's a new version. I've never really seen that. But in, in, in chapter 34 in Exodus, in verse 8, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, as, as this is happening, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Basically, what John wants us to do is keep that in mind as he goes through the next four verses. As we go to chapter 1, we just read um, 14 through 18, when he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He then goes on to explain it. 
And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That language, we think, oh, grace and truth, those are kind of opposites, right? Truth is that I'm a sinner and grace is that God forgave me. And that's not exactly the way John saw it. Um, It's really, this is a pair of of words that go together. And it's supposed to invoke in our mind the the holiness of God, that God is, is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. John is making this connection that the same God whom, who, who in Exodus, Moses could not see face to face, has come to be with us face to face. He says, John, and Jesus' cousin John, there's a lot of Johns in the Bible, um, not the guy who's writing this, but a different John, John the Baptist. John bore witness to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, John says, man, if you, if you think I'm something, right? He, John the Baptist was a crazy guy. He ate, he ate locusts and wild honey. If you think I'm something, he said, wait till you see Jesus. For, for, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In other words, this was God's idea. A little over a week, um, little kids are going to be going down to the Christmas tree. And, and what they want to see is they want to see gift upon gift. This word gift and grace, they are related because God's grace is a gift. It literally means undeserved merit or undeserved favor. It's not just a sprinkling of that. It is grace upon grace, heaping piles of grace. God says, Man, it is my idea. And though we don't deserve it, God gives us this grace through Jesus. For the law was given through Moses, verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And again, this isn't like opposite game where one of these things is not like the other. Not that the law is bad, but grace and truth is good. It's that the law could not save us, and Jesus is the completion of that in grace and truth. And then he gives the kicker. In 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God, meaning Jesus, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. In other words, John says, I don't want you to miss this. It's almost as if he writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He said, I mean, that's, that's difficult to wrap our minds around. That's difficult you know, when we just say it out loud. It's one of those things that sounds trite. It sounds nice. You put it on a Hallmark card, whatever it might be. But John says, don't you see? This is the same God that Moses, if he had seen him face to face, would have been smoked, just died on the spot just to behold him. And yet he has come to earth so that we might know him. John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he doesn't mean one of the disciples, we kind of walked with him and we had to follow him. No, he means us collectively as human beings, which means Jesus came to dwell with you. Jesus came to dwell with you. And friends, this is the joy of the gospel. This is the part that we, we, we tend to skip over. We, we tend to think is, is just super cute. Because the little baby Dita under the tree. But the fact that the holy and other and separate and completely loving God would come to dwell with our brokenness and our sinfulness to give us grace upon grace because he loves us. John says, don't miss it. Jesus came to dwell with you. Now, I think some of the reason why this doesn't impress us is because we, we, we mess it up, honestly. Um, especially, there, there's just something about it. When, when you've been in church a while, there's, there's, there's some, some things that begin to creep in or things that we begin to believe. And so there's a few variations on this that sometimes we believe. 
Um, the first one is this. Jesus came to allow me to dwell with him. I call this pity Christianity. Right? It's not Jesus came to dwell with me or Jesus came to dwell with you. Jesus came to allow me to dwell with him. It's almost as if this image of, of uh, Jesus is picking sides for, uh, for you know, a dodgeball game or a kickball game, and, and he sees me in the corner, and he says, oh, I'm Jesus, so I'm supposed to love you. Ben, just, just come on, just don't screw anything up, okay? It's not that he came to dwell with me. He can say, all right. You, you can come and you can hang out with me. Just don't screw anything up. We can just try to be cool, okay? Don't screw this up. Many of us believe in pity Christianity. We're all right. Yeah, Jesus came to dwell with us, and, and yeah, he, he loves us, and he loves me because he has to, but I don't really think he likes me. No, Jesus came to dwell with you. Another version of this is that Jesus came to give me the means to dwell with him. I call this tryout Christianity. Jesus came to give me the means to dwell with him. This is a little bit different because what this means is Jesus is seeing who makes the cut. Now, Jesus wants you to dwell with him. He's hoping you make the cut. He came to give you the list of things to do so that you could make the cut. But not everybody's going to make the cut if you, if you just don't do it right. Now, I hope you do. This is tryout Christianity. Some of you... Believe in this. Even no matter how long you've been following Jesus, there's a part of you that believes that you can screw it up so much that Jesus would say, sorry, you don't make the team. When I was um, in, in high school, I played soccer, and uh, I went to a tiny high school in a, in, in a league of small high schools, and I thought I was something. I made all league. I, I was pretty decent. And then I went to college to play soccer, and I found out there's real soccer players uh, at the college level. And I, and I barely made the team. In fact, I wasn't even sure I wanted to make the team because I felt like I was going to die over those two weeks of, of, of preseason. But I really wanted to because it just sounded like so much fun and, and I wasn't really sure. But there was this anxiety in me. I was, I'm not sure if I want to. I'm not sure if I will. I'm not sure if I make the cut. To live this way with God is not how God designed it. If this is where you are at. To live with this type of relationship where you have this anxiety inside you, where you're not sure if you're going to make the cut, you're not sure how God feels about you. This is not how God designed it. Jesus came to dwell with you. Just end, stop, full stop, end of sentence. Jesus came to dwell with you. Last one is kind of like it. Jesus came to see who could dwell with him. I call this us and them Christianity. The image I have of this is Jesus showing up with his posse. And, and, and for some reason, those who espouse this version of spirituality or Christianity or religion or whatever you want to call it are often those who think they know who makes the cut. And so those who, who believe that they're with Jesus, believe they're in his posse, and, and they kind of imagine Jesus showing up and saying, okay, you're on the team. Nope. Nope. Yep. Nope. Nope. Well, you shouldn't be, but, but, but your grandfather started this church, so I guess you can. Nope. Yep. Okay. Maybe. This is us and them. This is not why Jesus came. See who could? Jesus came to dwell with you. End of sentence. Jesus came to dwell with us. Now, again, the, the difficulty with this is it's something we can wrap our minds around, but it's difficult to live this out because if we remember, we started this morning 
I'm asking the question, you ever feel like God has stood you up? Waiting for God to show up is one of the most agonizing things that we can imagine. And it's easy to feel like God has stood us up. And again, if you and I sat down, if, if, if we hung out for a while, if I just heard your story, I'd say, I see exactly why you feel that way. So there's no judgment. But I want you to hear something very, very clearly. When we feel like God has stood us up, it's usually because there's these circumstances that are close to us. There's these circumstances that are right around us. There's these fires going on that we wish God would put out. And we say, well, yeah, I guess God, God showed up at some point in time, but he didn't do something about this, and he didn't do something about this, and I wish he would have done something about this, and I wish at least he would have kept her away from me, you know, even if, she didn't, even if he did do something about her, and I wish this had never happened. God, where were you when you showed up in all of this? And again, as gently as I can say this, when God shows up or when God views our lives, he sees things as different kinds of priorities than we do. We see these things around us, these circumstances that we wish God would fix as priority one. Because the fire is at the door, there's, there's, there's something going on, and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen tomorrow, and I'm not sure I'm going to have my job, and I'm not gonna sure if I'm going to be able to make my mortgage payment. I'm not sure if this is going to work out okay. I'm not sure if the diagnosis is going to be, God, would you please just do something about these things? And God looks at our lives, and he sees much different priorities about how he needs to come and rescue and so over the next few minutes, what I want to do is just explain, even if you're in that place where you're hurting and, and you're saying, God, God did not show up or he, or he didn't show up as I expected, I just want to walk through some of the places that we can be sure that God showed up and how that changes everything. John gives us a little clue in this passage at the end. In verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God. Remember, we want, he wants us to go back to Moses. He wants us to remember God is so other, God is so holy. And it's not that he is distant and unloving. It's that if we saw him and beheld him face to face, Moses would have died. And he says, you remember that? Remember how that wasn't possible? Well, through Jesus, it is possible. He says, the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, who's fully God, the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. It is possible to know God through Jesus. And a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about the Trinity. There's, there's three persons in one God and, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's not something we can walk through today. But the point is this. Jesus has made it possible to know God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. Fast forward a few chapters, a couple chapters. Um, Jesus, uh, John quotes Jesus in, in a conversation um, that he's having with a religious leader called Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, religious leaders in that, in, in that time, they, they didn't really know how they felt about Jesus. And so Nicodemus didn't want his friends to kind of make fun of him. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and they have a conversation. 
And, and in that conversation, Jesus says something that I think sometimes we skip over because um, 316 is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then we sometimes skip over the next verse. And the next verse is this, verse 17. For God, Jesus says, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to rescue. And again, when there's, there's fires going on, when, when there's all this happening and it's at your door and you just don't know what you're going to do tomorrow, you don't know how you're going to walk through this, it's difficult to see this, but Jesus came to rescue you. He didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to point out uh, how you're wrong. You're just going to have to fix it yourself. He came full of grace and truth, of loving, and loving kindness and faithfulness. And he doesn't ignore our brokenness. He doesn't ignore our sin, but he waded into it. He put on flesh and bone to die for us and to rescue you. This is why Jesus came to dwell with you, not to condemn, but to save, to rescue. And how did he do that? Isaiah, who wrote hundreds of years, he was a prophet who wrote hundreds of years before Jesus, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through God, was, was given an image of what the Messiah would be like. And he writes that in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. And this is what he, looking ahead to the Messiah, he sees. And he writes in the past tense as if it's already happened because it's what God planned before any of our brokenness ever entered the world. Before you were ever a glimmer in your parents' eyes, God planned this. This wasn't plan B. This wasn't a backup plan. This was the plan from the beginning. Isaiah 3 says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, with that man, you were cursed by God. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. His pain would be so much that we would look at him and say, surely God has turned his back on him. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone. There's nobody who is not in this boat. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came to rescue. Friends, if you are in this, this, piece, this place of, of pain, if you put on a good face this morning and you got out of the car and you have that smile on and you're greeting, everything's fine, but inside you feel like you're dying because you, you, just, you just don't know where God is and you don't know where he's in this circumstance and you thought it would show up and you thought if you prayed enough, this would happen. And if you thought you went to enough small group or read your Bible or were part of church or whatever it might be, that God would do this. But it's just, it's just falling apart. In this side of heaven, there's no picking up those pieces. Friends, God has not stood you up. God has not stood you up. Jesus came to dwell with you. 
And we can say that in confidence, not because we're the center of everything, but because Jesus, when he came, he had you in mind. This isn't just a general thing where just because you're part of humanity, you get to be part of the group, and Jesus says, sure, you can come along. This isn't pity Christianity. Sure, you can come and dwell with me. Jesus thought of you. He knows every hair on your head. Jesus came to dwell with you. And not just so that you'd have a friend. And not just so that, 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 that he would know what it's like. He did it in addition to that to die for you. To rescue you. Now again, it's one thing to read this. One, one thing to say, yeah, I, I know. Okay, Jesus came to dwell with me. I, I can wrap my mind around that. But for that to seep into our lives, that's a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong journey. So this morning, what I want you to do, I just want you to take one step. And, and, and starting this morning, just for the next seven days, I just want you to ask this question. What if it's true? What if it's true? What if it's true that Jesus really came to dwell with you and he came to rescue? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're, we're glad you're here. If you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe somebody invited you, a cute girl, and drug you here, you promised lunch, whatever it is. I'm glad you're here. And this is a lot, I know. But what if it's true that Jesus came to dwell with you? It's not a set of rules. It's not uh, anything like that. He just came to dwell with you and to rescue you. It has the potential to change everything. And maybe growing up, maybe you walked away from church because you were presented one of these, these, these versions of, of, of Christianity, maybe pity Christianity, maybe us and them Christianity, tryout Christianity, and, and you knew somewhere in your core that isn't what God was really like, and so you walked away. Jesus came to dwell with you. What if it's true? At the very least, I hope it changes how you view God as a next step. At the very least, I hope you see God as someone who came not to condemn, but to save because he loves you. Not because we deserve it, not because we could ever pay him back, not because we could earn it, but because he loves you. What if it's true? Jesus came to dwell with you. If you've been following Jesus for a number of years, maybe you're in, in, in one of these seasons where you say, yeah, I, I know God is there and I'm showing up and I'm going to small group and I'm doing, I'm doing all these things, but it's just empty. The words I sing feel empty. The words I read or I pray feel empty and I am trying. I'm wondering, God, where are you? Did you really show up? Because there's all these things going on and I just, I just don't see it. What if it's true that Jesus came to dwell with you? It may not fix these, 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 these temporal, these, these things going on around. These things may still be there tomorrow. But you can rest knowing that Jesus came to give you the most important gift, which was to rescue you. And even though we don't have answers about all these things, and, and I can't give you any platitude that would fix those things, 
We know at our core that Jesus came to rescue. And one day, you'll see him face to face. Friends, what if it's true? What would this do for our relationships? What would this do when, when tomorrow we get that piece of bad news and we didn't expect it? What would this do for the diagnosis that we're facing, for these issues that we're facing, for the bills that are piling? What would this do? Jesus came to dwell with you. He didn't come just so that you could be with him because he feels sorry for you. He didn't come to see if you could make the cut so you could have another chance and, and, and just see, okay, just don't screw it up. And he didn't come to condemn. He came to save and to rescue. Jesus came to dwell with you. Let me pray for you. Father God, there are times I confess when I see what is happening in my heart, in my life, and those around me, and I wonder, God, why don't you show up and do something about this? And God, I lose sight of the fact that you did already come. That in Jesus, you came to rescue. You came to dwell. You came to put on flesh and bone. You came not just to stay for a couple of days, but you came to live and to die, to live the, death, the life I never could, to die a death that I deserved so that I could be with you forever. God, help me see that joy. Help me see that there's joy in reunion. Help me see that, Father, when, when circumstances around me are not happy, that I still have everlasting joy because Jesus came to rescue. God, we love you. I pray that this would seep into our hearts, that as we go throughout our weeks, that we would see you in a new way. And even as we face difficulty, that, God, that we would know that you came Jesus came to dwell with us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.